Welcome to the Stories to Learn by podcast. It's Adam and I'm here today with Katie Cullen. Um, Katie, do you want to just give uh, a little bit of an introduction background of what you do, what you don't do, who you are? <laughs> yeah, cool. So I'm Katie. I am a 37-year-old woman and I live in Essex, just down the road from you, Adam. <laughs> um, we're in... Uh, Leon C now, but I come, I've come via a different Essex town. I grew up in uh, Brentwood and then I moved away. And I, to be honest, I didn't think that I'd come back here. Um, I studied in Birmingham and then did a year in uh, the States, in California, and then lived in London uh, for most of my 20s and then came and settled back in Essex, albeit in uh, a different part by the sea, um, to have a family. So my professional background is in international higher education. Um, I predominantly work with um, American universities running study abroad programs in the UK. Um, but I was made redundant in 2017 and I haven't been in paid employment since. And I think that um, it's quite interesting that, um, you know, when you talk about learning and development, my relationship with work has actually been quite a conflicted one in the last few years and I've been really considering you know how do we develop as people and how do we progress and how do we how, how do we get that done outside of the remits of paid employment because I think that there are still some quite restrictive attitudes towards things like leadership or toward things like you know personal development if it's not tied to your job and also work is such a huge identity isn't it so for me losing my job came at the time when my children were quite young um mm. so it's all tied up in in all of that and you know becoming a parent and becoming a mother is it's quite a blow isn't it to yours there's quite a lot to unpack in terms of like who you are what you do so you know I lost my job we'd recently moved house we just had a family and so all that kind of happened at, at about the same time and I'm sure sure we'll chat about it later and um, all the different things that I've been doing that haven't been earning money yeah um, but that's a, a a little bit about me I guess currently um I, and this is how we know each other, of course, I'm um, a member of the Women's Equality Party and I'm standing as a candidate in um, one of our local wards. Um, so that's that's where I am at the moment. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I, we'll just dive into a little bit deeper. The, the start with the, the education bit, the international education running programmes um, internationally. Um, how is that? Because it's... Uh, education is a funny thing it's almost like um learning development sees itself as it's all uppity you know it's better than education to some extent because we're not forcing people to go through some form of learning we're actually fitting it to make their job better there's an outcome there's an immediate outcome i guess yeah um how those programs what the the the, the main benefits for the people going through it i mean was it was it just the fact they're in a different country or is there um, there more to it yeah, so I mean, you you've hit on the uh, the ongoing question in international education because that's what everyone's grasping for, right? How do we 
how do you measurably outcome somebody's global competency? You know, is there such a thing as cultural competency? And of course there's not, you know, that's a totally ongoing learning thing. And, and especially um, in American education, certainly historically, and there have been movements to, to, to battle this, but to be able to study abroad is a real privilege. And you, you know, it was traditionally something that was uh, predominantly females would study abroad and arts degrees and wealthy white people. So kind of decolonizing um, international education is a huge thing. You know, what, you know, you've got to try and make sure that global competency isn't just another competency that privileged people can acquire that, that gets them further in life that other people don't. So I think what you're saying about all of the stuff around education, mm. around, you know, kind of formal accreditation is definitely something that um, international education is all about because it's about the work placements that students mm. can do. It's about voluntary placements that they do. It's about um, understanding place and understanding peoples in a way that contextualizes what they're learning. So whilst traditionally arts degrees and students of arts degrees could you know oh let's go to England it's the birthplace of Shakespeare and <laughs> Jane Austen etc etc a lot of um the things that I was doing to try and diversify um global education and, and make it more accessible was working out how every student um from community college to you know ivy leagues um had an opportunity um to study abroad so in degrees like um pharmacy or law or mm. business i was such a champion for london to be you know i th I, th I really believe still believe that london has something to offer for absolutely everyone um and can um really enhance people's learning experience so that was a really fun thing to do and i really enjoyed that part of my job that's, that's, sounds interesting and you you touched on sort of uh disappearing to birmingham to study and then america yourself where mm -hmm. were you in the states so i went to the university of california uh, santa barbara which at the time when i studied there which was 2005 to 2006 um and i'm not sure if it's the same now i expect it is but it was um it had a big reputation as a big party school um, in okay. fact, it was it was it was known as the party school that intelligent people went to, <laughs> and I don't think that's anything about me because they let anyone in to uh, study abroad there. Um, but it was, I mean, it was incredible. Um, it it was everything that I sort of imagined that it could be. It's beautiful. The campus is on the the beach. I remember one of my first lectures uh, when I walked in, I thought, what are those metal racks at the back of the of, of the lecture hall? Um, and again, it, it, that was kind of one of the first proper big lecture halls that I'd mm. seen on, on TV at the University of Birmingham. We didn't, we didn't really have those for American studies. You know, there were small seminar rooms. So I was in this big lecture hall and there were these big metal racks at the back. And I was like, oh, quite curious about those. And then um, people would just come in and they'd prop up their surfboard 
and then they come and sit down and and do their lecture and I just was like pinch me you know <laughs> on the streets of Selly Oak there'd be rats outside digging through your bins and I'd look outside my window and there were actually dolphins jumping in the back so it was it was a wonderful experience like insane you know that they really do have kegs and red cups um so I felt like I was in American Pie uh, yeah, that it's funny, and that that's the the, the immediate thing that goes uh, came to my mind is American Pie, just like the the silly sh- stupid parties and uh, people being I don't know. Do you, so that must have been really interesting because you would have come from you know University of Birmingham where everyone's more or less British to some extent. I, I imagine quite a lot. They certainly were on my course. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know that uh, I did a bit of work with universities a few years ago and then there was, I don't know if it's Birmingham or Coventry, where there's a massive Chinese uh, um, sort of population. I don't know if that was the same in 2005-ish. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, was that was that Birmingham or was that Coventry or a different Well, one? Birmingham's got three... Uh, okay three universities and so the university of birmingham is um what's well, a russell group university it's a oh, red brick university so i actually found sort of the, the every university has its has its different like culture right and the culture at the university of birmingham that was immediately apparent to me um as a first generation university attendee from essex oh, yeah. was one of class it was a crash course in class education. Really? I was saying to a friend the other day that um, everyone who met me in that first year or who knew me in that first year, I reckon that about 50% of those didn't know my name as Katie. They just called me Essex. And I mean, there's so much to unpack there in terms of gender and class. But um, yeah, you know, I didn't even realise I had an accent until I came to, to Birmingham. So it was... It was the first time for me coming from a small suburban Essex, Essex towns I did that I was exposed to lots of different culture. But it was also the first time that I was explo- exposed to the notion of class, because I think where I grew up in suburban Essex, if there was judgment, it was very much based on, um, you know, kind of socioeconomic background, whereas this was it was a whole new world to me, you know. Yeah. and lots of RAS as we called them and people who had gone on gap yards and yeah. Um, yeah lots and lots of um uh, you know let's just say there, was, there, I, there were low expectations placed upon me <laughs> which was something it was the first time I'd really encountered that and the kind of reality of what it meant to be an Essex girl I suppose. It's, it's interesting the question that I was going to ask before sort of when was the the maturity uh, aspect like uh because I always like I mean I'm ro- this is rose tinted by the influence of uh, American pie I imagine but I always imagine that someone who's 18 in um in the states and who's 18 in the UK are very different right well I feel like we grow up a little bit quicker um absolutely yeah you're right yeah. uh oh, okay so uh, that is it and I was going to say what were your experiences like that going from you know you would have you know, in Birmingham, you would have grown up quite a bit anyway through that first year, right? You know, moving out of home and, you know, up to uni. Uh, and then that must have been, it, that must have exploded again when you got to Santa Barbara. Is that sort of, was that an influence over you going into international education then um, with the idea of uh, supporting those people coming to, to the UK? 
yeah yeah definitely um if I had a pound for every time somebody asked me what I was going to do with an American studies degree you know I'd just be a millionaire and I wish that I knew then that I was actually going to go into American higher higher education because I would have been able to you know bat them over their head with that I remember somebody showing me um a double page spread I think it was my dad um in you know a right-wing broadsheet probably the Tory graph um you know I, lots of people kept saying what what are you doing American studies for yeah. you know loads of people think that you go into education you know it's a it's a it's a vocational path and of course for some people it is but I'm a believer in education just you know being one more learning experience and step on the road um rather than being a direct A to B um but I do wish that I knew then that I was going to go into American <laughs> higher education because I would have been able to to, to um, have a good rejoinder to their questions. Um, and I said that um, my dad um, showed me a double page spread in a c- conservative broadsheet paper that had a picture of an empty McDonald's counter. And the, the headline was, um, please wait here, an American studies graduate will be here to serve you soon. And it was around about that time that they talked about Mickey Mouse degrees and yeah. and there was that big debate in higher education. It was just, I went to university just before they bought in um, top-up fees. Mm. Um, I was there 2003 to 2007. And there was a huge debate about the value of different degrees. And that's when we really saw that huge shift in education um so anyway I did actually use my my degree for something very uh, very occasional in the end and went into American uh, study abroad and that the fact that I had that experience of being an international student has been so valuable to me through my career helping students because I understand you know where, where they're coming from and particularly between America and the UK sometimes because our cultures are so similar in so many ways or there's quite a lot of sort of cross-pollination Americans love the Brits and we have so much American media um I think that lots of us think that it's very easy to just understand each other Mm. and so I found that that experience of culture shock that I experienced and the experience that I see uh, students coming over here um, having um, you know my experience really feeds into helping them manage that um, I often say it's like stepping into a parallel universe because if you're studying abroad in a country where the language is different and the food is totally different um, you're you, you make more preparations before you go and you are perhaps slightly more resilient in advance because your expectations have been managed. But that doesn't often happen with students coming from America uh, to the UK. And so they get here and it's like stepping into a parallel universe. They're like, I hear you and I understand you, but there's something I don't understand. And that can be quite disturbing, I think, um, to be, you know, to have the ground shift under you like that. So I definitely found that my experiences studying abroad have helped me professionally be able to have that that empathy. And then, yeah, I actually, like I think lots of people, I fell into my job. I was, I saw it advertised in Guardian and thought, oh, that looks great. You know, I do that. I did a study abroad. Um, 
I did a, a, a year abroad. I could work in study abroad. So I went for an interview at a study abroad program provider and uh, yeah, got a job in their student life department. And that was, that was my first job. Amazing. So putting that to one side, because it sounds like you've um, essentially moved on from, from that education because as, as you pointed out um, we know each other uh, through uh, Venice, my wife uh, um, in and the women's equality party. Um, so putting that sort of international education to one side, what have you been doing since then? Right. To, to coin an Essex race, uh, but what you've been up to. Um, yeah. And, and you said you've, you've got kids you've got, is that right? You've, yeah. I've got two kids, uh, six and seven. Oh, amazing ages. Yeah, so they're at primary school. Brilliant. Um, Yeah, so since I I stopped work, um, so I was made redundant in 2017 and my eldest son had a year before he started primary school and then my daughter's a year younger than him, so she had a couple of years before she went to school. So... I am denied about what was next. Um, my leaving work wasn't particularly a positive experience for me and I needed some time to sort of process, you know, what had happened and, you know, it being a parent and working wasn't working for me at the time. Um, and so I decided that I was going to take a few years out and do something completely different, do what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to go back to school um, and do a postgraduate degree and I wanted to hang out with the kids. So I spent actually that first year after I got made redundant, um, literally just hanging out with my kids because I knew it was it was a year before uh, Finn, my son, started school. So we just got like annual passes to all these play, you know, zoos and farms <laughs> and we'd go to London and I've got, you know, pass for museums in London and we'd just go out all the time and it was you know it was such a brilliant brilliant year and especially looking back with kind of pandemic glasses I'm so glad we got to do that um so yeah we just hung out loads and loads and went out it was a bit like being on holiday on a really extended holiday and then I thought right well you know this can't go on forever so when my son started school I decided to start school as well so then I um went to Birkbeck College which is part of the University of London I don't know if you know it um but it offers degrees um in during the evening like between 6 and 9 p.m all of their seminars and classes so you have lots of people lots of mature students and lots of people who are in employment so that they can um, attain undergraduate and postgraduate degrees Mm. so I did a master's in um contemporary literature and culture and I did it part-time um, and I, I recently finished that. Um, that was fun during the pandemic, <laughs> writing the yeah. thesis. Um, and I did quite a lot of voluntary work as well. Um, I worked in kitchens at a local homeless charity, um, which is brilliant. I love to cook um, and it was so nice to, it's so difficult to integrate across a community entirely yeah. because it's hard to move away from your bubble. Yeah. And, and that's definitely one of the things that I knew that I was going to miss from work. You know, working gives you that opportunity to talk to people that you, your paths don't normally cross, and um, whether that's through age or background or location, whatever. 
Um, so that was a really great opportunity for me to, um, you know, understand how, um, you know, South End, where we live, has got a lot of deprivation. Mm. Um, so it was really nice to be part of community initiatives to um, help. So I did that and I joined the Women's Equality Party, uh, led by your fantastic wife, Venice, who is a continual inspiration to me. Um, and that's been great as well. I'd always been um, engaged in with feminism academically through my undergraduate degree. You know, my undergraduate thesis was um, on feminist film. And when I was at the University of California, actually, um, I did predominantly women's studies modules um, and my postgraduate degree as well. Um, I did uh, my final master's thesis was on motherhood and I had the opportunity to study under uh, Jacqueline Rose, who is a formidable force in feminism. So that was incredible. So I'd done lots of academic work around feminism and, um, you know, been on women's marches, but I hadn't actually been part of a collective at all. And a friend of a friend of mine was involved in the Women's Equality Party in London. And they always said, Katie, you know, you should you should sign up to the Women's Equality Party. It's so your thing. And, you know, it's one of those things where a few different people tell you the same thing. You think, oh, maybe I should listen to this. Mm. So I subscribed to um, their newsletter and when Venice uh, set up a branch, I believe it was probably around the time that you moved to the area because she led a, a, a branch um, elsewhere before, didn't she? Yeah. Um, I got the email saying a new branch is being set up in your area. Do you want to be a part of it? So um, I did. So I've been a data manager and a co-lead on comms for a couple of years and that's been you know, a great way to meet other women who are interested in the same things that I am and has led me to being where I never thought I would be, which is standing in a local election as, mm. um, <laughs> as a candidate. So that's definitely been a, a, a big part of enabling me to carry on, you know, growing and learning yeah. outside of paid employment. And that's been, yeah, fantastic. Because it there's there's a couple of things there that I sort of want to delve into you mentioned that the your your master's was on motherhood um and you also made a comment earlier where um uh working and parenthood is is, is really difficult something that i've experienced um uh, as well um obviously not motherhood uh but the the parenting and uh and um i was a single parent for a while with uh with two kids so um have been definitely been there um but uh, the 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 piece on on motherhood for your masters and 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 how uh sort of motherhood and, and work has sort of changed or parenthood and work has changed recently like you know this pandemic and everything um we talk about this a lot uh, at home and it's the idea that it's not going back right like it's not going back to that idea you you know you can't ever turn it someone away for working from home on a friday because they've got to pick up the kids you know you can't ever turn them away that anymore because it's been thoroughly proven that working from home is fine and yeah funnily enough we we all still do our jobs yeah. um uh do you do you think that that's that's going to come you know 
to fruition or do you think it's going to bounce back to to people turning people away because they need them to be at their desk well I think it's changing I think is the important thing now I don't think it's changed because there's a lot of the people in power are still the people with holding the old set of viewpoints and who benefited from the old system so it's not necessarily in their interest for things to change mm-hmm. but I do think that there are you know there are a lot more progressive viewpoints and I think it's probably just accelerated um accelerated people's mindset on those kind of issues that were seen as progressive that they now see actually work from a business perspective as well as from a a looking after your employees perspective but I don't I don't necessarily think that the pandemic has been well I I actually think the opposite I don't think it's been you know some golden opportunity for women to prove you know on, on the one hand they have managed to prove that women who work from home aren't just going out and getting the nails done or looking after their kids all day with one eye on the playpen and one eye on the on the computer you know having everybody at home has shown that you know work at home is as valid as work in the office but I also think that during the pandemic you saw it was still mostly women who were homeschooling the kids when they were at home and industries that are male dominated didn't necessarily allow for the space for the men to participate in 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 home life and that's definitely you know something that I've found personally in my own you know home setup my husband's job did not allow for him to have time off to you know help us out in any kind of sustainable way of course he did in his lunch hour and he's you know we um like you know I I know you and Venista we live in a very equal household um there there is no there's no gender bullshit here but um it's all about the systems that allow us to progress and they still need a lot of work you know so in male-led industries like finance or um you know construction have a friend who's who, mm. who who works in that you need to put things into place to allow um things to happen if you don't do that they can't happen so it's not it's not always just about the in, the individual oh well i believe in this so therefore it's going to happen you know if you're not given the means by which to do it then then it's not going to happen and so it then just falls onto you know is it still continues to be women's work but yeah in terms of flexible working I do hope that we see we've been able to have this year where we say well I can actually prove to you Mm. you know I've had friends who have requested flexible working when they've gone back after maternity leaves and the key piece of advice that's always um always given to people is ask for it on a trial period because it's really difficult for employers to be able to say no, that didn't work for us. Um, if you, you know, if you've proved that it does actually work, yeah. and so perhaps the pandemic has offered everybody that trial period to show, well, actually, you know, I can do this. So yeah, it, it, it remains to be seen. But ultimately, I mean, working from home isn't also. It's not. That's not what women automatically want. You know, it's still the home. it would be nice to have systems where there were um you know we knew that there was external childcare that was um affordable for everyone you know not just professionals on 
good salaries you know for childcare for everyone that was perhaps means tested or something so that women could leave the home <laughs> um, and, and and parents as well you know um, all parents not you know not just women we always talk about women's equality as um, being for women but of course it's you know all of the um the changes that we want to see are equally as beneficial to men and um, for men to have the opportunity to have as much family and work interaction balanced so it's a choice for each family rather than an expectation placed upon you know perhaps the traditional expectation of women to care and men not to I mean like you said your experience you've done an awful lot of heavy lifting in terms of care work um uh but you know that's not that's not the choice that most men get so actually you know if we if we strive for um gender equality in terms of care and paid employment both sexes uh, benefit ultimately is my belief yeah, so that yeah. was kind of a roundabout answer to your question it's been good in some ways but let's not rest on our laurels and still chip away at the systems because ultimately that's what holds us back i think often people feel like they've got to find the thing that gets taken away when these new things are added um and 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 people will you know they'll they'll clamber at oh but we're not as productive at home mm, not true uh oh you know to your point they've got an eye on the kids and eye on the work not true uh and 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 they'll clamber that oh well you know i think the latest one i've heard is that oh well you know uh, men aren't uh not many men actually want to do any of these things so it's pointless in us doing it in the first place and I think again, not true. There's, there's I mean, that's so totally not true. Exactly. And <laughs> all so, the men I've spoken to, you know, so you know, it's been a it's been a real benefit for them to and an eye opener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, just taking the kids to to school once a week or whatever is, um, you know, uh, has opened up a huge amount of of eyes on, on, on what those kids are, are experiencing. And, and even when they don't have kids, even when it is just uh, being at home, they starting to see the, uh, the, the, the expected work, like the, 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 the woman, you know, you move in with someone and, you know, when you haven't got kids and yada, yada, yada. And the woman is naturally the one that walks around and tidies the place up and so on and so forth. You know, I think being at home and, and seeing that and, and, and actually seeing and feeling those things, it will hopefully, touch wood, change people's, you know, responsibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know. I don't know. It's not, I, I, I try and keep up with these things, but um, uh, I always, I'm, I'm living and learning, as they say. We all uh, are, yeah. Yeah. Um, just so... I gave you a bunch of stories uh, and we, you know, I mean, is there a particular one that you want to, you want to talk through? Uh, it's not, not a requirement. As I said, you know, we can, we can go into them or we can just carry on having an hour. Up to you. I mean, yes. I've, I've written a few notes. Um, <laughs> you come proper prepared. You and me some ideas. I wasn't like, oh, let me think about that. Um, yeah, so you, you, we can, yeah, yeah see where it goes. Which one? So you want to go Monday first or? 
Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. That was the something exciting that's happened, right? Yeah, yeah, something exciting over the weekend that you were really looking forward to telling everyone on Monday morning. That idea, you know, uh, walking into work, grabbing a cup of coffee, sitting by the coffee, standing by the coffee machine, and and having an hour with someone. That's the idea. Yeah, and so I thought about that big that big moment when um, I bought my first flat because Amazing. we found. We were thinking about it. And like I said, I'd, I'd just finished university in London, uh, sorry, in Birmingham and moved back to my parents in Essex and was spending a lot of time with my boyfriend, who's now my husband, um, at his family's house as well in Essex. And we were looking around places in sort of Romford where where he lived. And then we thought, oh, maybe maybe we'll move to London. You know, that sounds quite exciting. And we found a flat on a... Uh, on a random website um a bit like gumtree for houses you know this was sort of well before the days of um social media i think facebook was probably in its infancy um so you know looking back it, I'd, I'd probably think it was a bit dodgy now but at the time we were like oh very exciting and um yeah we found a really cute little flat um one bedroom flat on the harangay ladder in north london and uh, went to look around and it was immaculately kept um, and our offer was accepted and it was more than we thought that we could you know that was in our budget and um, I just remember running into work on the Monday just so excited because I'd only been in that job for a few months and I'd been commuting in uh, from Essex to Kensington and you know yeah I was like you know Brett and I have bought a flat and we're we're going to move to London and I just thought you know London and everything they represented was so exciting um that new job new home and new city um I think looking back now after we've had the pandemic you know I haven't I haven't been to London now for a year um which is just crazy when I think Mm. about it um but place is so important, isn't it? And London means so much to me because of my job and the fact that my job was making London, you know, London as an academic text yeah. and relating the city to someone's education and then moving there. Yeah, that was such a happy moment at work for me, chatting with my bosses who'd also recently bought. Um, I just felt like a real grown-up and it was so nice to chat to everyone. <laughs> I know I you know you know saying that so I grew up in in London not far from uh from Hackney Haringey uh Tottenham and I always had family in Basildon and so we'd go to Basildon every other weekend or whatever and I always remember them saying that London was this big thing that was far away and <laughs> in my head thinking it's half hour on the train I know <laughs> And, but it, but you're right. There is a cultural thing of it being so far away because it's so vastly different, even though you're so close. Because there isn't a tube line or whatever that there yeah. is in like some parts of Surrey or whatever. You know, there um, even like North London, Enfield, and all of that. Which is is it? What's the furthest one away? Is it? Um, is it Har- No, not Har- Harlow. Isn't that on like the end of Metro Metropolitan Line or something like that? 
Oh, I don't know. But I mean, on the district line, it goes all the way to um, Artminster. Yeah, yeah. Which is obviously sort of where I grew up. You know, technically I did live near it. I had an oyster card. Um, I I lived in a donut borough, but there was something about going to zone three. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It feels so far away. And I wonder, yeah, that 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 being like you, well, me doing the opposite, right? Going from London to Essex and still feeling like it's just down the road. And you going from Essex to London and feeling like yeah. you're miles away. It's a, it's a funny thing and maybe a um, yeah, weird cultural thing. Interesting. Probably loads yeah. to unpack there. <laughs> but that's cool. And you, and you bought this flat in Hackney. Uh, you would have been the coolest kid on the block because like Hackney. I wasn't that cool. I wasn't that cool. It wasn't Hackney. It was Har- the Haringey Ladder. Although oh, I the heard. Haringey Ladder. Uh, yeah. yeah so exactly. Not too far from Tottenham. Yeah, I mean, you must. Um, so, so I was what, right around right Stoke that way. Well, I was by Turnpike Lane Station, so the ladder goes are all the little roads that crisscross up from Manor House Station to Turnpike Lane. So I was between the two. Um, yeah, and that flat just yeah saw so many memories. Um, with you know with with my work pals and with my other you know most of us have moved from university and gone to London. Like everyone does the same thing, attracted by big city lights and now you know no no one lives there I mean that's not true I've got a few friends but they live all over the world now um as well as the country but you know we immediately congregated there and yeah that flat saw so many memories and parties I got married in that flat and in the actual there's flat. some born there until we moved I was going to say, well, you didn't get married in the actual flat, did you? No. <laughs> Islington Town Hall. We got out. Amazing. That's a lovely venue, Islington Town Hall. That's a really. Oh nice. yeah, that was. It was a really lovely day, Islington Town Hall, and then we. Um, do you know the Albion Pub? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is where we had um, our reception. It was yeah, Amazing. lovely, really low key. I was thinking about. When you asked me to think about something exciting and say something exciting, I thought about um, young people these days and actually just other millennials as well. Um, It made me think of how the reality of home ownership, you know, I was so young, really. I think I was 24 or 25 and I was buying a flat in London um, and I was only able to do that, right, because, you know, I had a job, so I had a few pay slips, I could pay a mortgage, but... You obviously need a deposit and with house prices going up the way they are that that chunk of a deposit is so much money i was only able to do that because my boyfriend had been saving for years and years and years and years because he'd been he's a bit older than me and hadn't moved out from home so i'd done a foot we actually got together just before i started university we've been together since i was 19 so he was sort of waiting for me to finish uni i guess so he'd had all that time to save up that deposit and he had a bit of inheritance from his nan so we're so lucky because that's not that is absolutely not the reality for somebody who goes into a job in like the arts or education um the you know these days and particularly not for you know young people now um do you know the wine shop in lee vino vero do you yeah. ever yeah. yeah so um the the couple who um, founded that, Charlie and Sam Brown, yeah, you know them. Um, they obviously, as you know, they so they founded this wine shop, um, and it's a great little wine shop, um, fantastic place. They've won like independent wine retailer of the year, you know, a few times. Um, you know, really successful. And during the pandemic, they decided to sell up. 
sold their shop, their house, um, sort of all their worldly possessions and, and go and travel, you know, for a life on the road, um, working and moving around Europe. And I've been following them avidly. But Charlie has been uh, writing freelance and I've been following her and um, her writing. And she wrote a really, really interesting article. The reason, you know, I'm sort of divulging these inf this information about them is to, is to put into context her article. And she wrote an article about, um, about the reality of, for millennials, the actual reality for millennials and the fact, and, you know, a lot of it was about home ownership and how lots of us hold these, a mindset that was set by the generation above us or above that, you know, sort of this boomer mentality of home yeah. ownership and have one job and, and how that just isn't the cards that we've been dealt. And so, you know, she was saying that reality sort of hit her. They, 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 they sold everything up and they're, they're actually, you know, going for things and experiences and it really really resonated with me that um you know this whole idea of property ownership and place should you stay in one place forever should you should you go and have life experiences and things and I think that's just where it led me when I thought about that really exciting time when I was at work and telling all my colleagues at my first job about buying a flat you know I think in the article, she said that um, only 43% of millennials own compared to 77% of boomers. And of those millennials that buy a house, 63% regret their decision. Um, you know, taking on all that debt and, uh, and all of that. And I just thought, you know, that's only going to be exacerbated now, right? And, and especially if you're Gen Z or, or whatever, like it's just such a different world and, you know, I find that quite interesting you know would I 10 years down the line would Katie who's buying a house now be able to afford that flat be able to have the same experience I think it's just totally different now isn't it yeah I mean the you you have sort of touched on something that's you know we've been talking about a lot um you know houses are We've always sort of taken the view that we wanted the smallest mortgage possible with the biggest house that we can, you know, or the smallest house that we could fit everyone in. Right? There's a lot of us, um, and uh, and and I think that there is there's sort of a an element of the next generation just having no hope in being able to buy a place, so they just don't bother, uh, and they'd rather spend that money on themselves. I, I guess where I'm sort of I differ from 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 maybe it's not different from Charlie's perspective or it's more that uh, maybe my wants and definitely my needs are different right I have all the children in all the land so um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so and I have had children since I was 19 years of age so uh, I've always had that responsibility yeah so having somewhere for them to be and to live and to not necessarily pass on to but to to have that stability of of bricks and mortar that i own was always sort of high on my priority list yeah but it was actually venice that you know pushed us over over the sort of threshold to go and go and do it um the the thing is the thing that i find so there's a conversation that this drags me back to where i I've, a, a while ago i worked for an old stuffy institution uh, in education as well but uh they um 
And the head of marketing, who was a very, very cool, enigmatic uh, woman um, who also was North London. So she felt like she had some connection with me. Uh, and she went, you know, kid, uh, people are right uh, now, you know, don't have the advantages that we got when we bought our house. And, and she was probably five or 10 years older than me at the time. And I was 24, 23, 24. Mm. And the way she said it was like, I had that advantage as well. Uh, and, and I always re remember feeling at that moment, like, shit, should I have bought a house at like the age of 19 or 20 or whatever? Yeah. And, and it wasn't, it, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, one, I wouldn't have been able to money wise. And two, it was just, it, you know, it was incredible. That age group, her being able to buy a house in the mid nineties, yeah. To 2000 and, you know, and being selling it in 2002, five, whatever. That, that jump, that huge amount of wealth is incredible. There's a, a, um, um, a, the wealth creation by all of that property being sold is massive. There's a, uh, there's an incredible um, series on Netflix at the moment called Amend, uh, which is Will Smith's thing about the 14th Amendment. Um, and how that's really, or 12th amendment, one of these amendments uh, to the US Constitution. And what, what is the amendment? Uh, it, it, the amendment is about equality, right? It's about equality uh, um, uh, for race and for, uh, and then it's used in all sorts of other ways. Um, but there is a piece in there around, uh, and I'm going to butcher this, but it, the idea is, is that there was a point at where uh, they created all of this uh, these houses and this property and then they either were gifted or sold a really low amount of money to people um, just after the end uh, or just either just after or just before the end of slavery and they, they point to this fact as the massive creation in wealth in America uh, in the same way like you were given this uh, this is wealth this was wealth that everyone in their taxes paid into and you were given this yeah uh, and and because you were you white middle class you know whatever class you, you that's it was white it was white southern landowner yes. yeah yes exactly and 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 so and and but these were like suburbia when suburbia was created yeah. and they were, all these houses were sold off really cheap um uh and, and it was like giving them wealth because obviously, you know, the amount of money for those plots in California and Calabasas, you know, all of these places that the real, you know, the Kardashians and shit live now, you know, all of these places were suburbia that were created to give to people. Uh, uh, they weren't like, anyway, but that there's, there's a point in there in that piece of history and that piece of history dragged me to my thoughts on that. And that, just brought all that back up. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, sorry, I've gone off on one. This is not. No, something. no, absolutely. Property, <laughs> wealth, and opportunity is such a huge thing, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I won't go into a tangent about politics, but it, you know, <laughs> that's why it's urban planning is such a you know, it seems like oh, a bit dry, but actually, it's got mm. so many social implications. Yep. And so, to not look at it with that broad perspective you know that's where so many you know politicians fall short anyway yeah well we've talked we've talked a, a lot about um 
yeah we talk about politics at home there's no two ways about it we can't get away from it i sort of make this i make this pledge with myself every every couple of weeks and then break it immediately not to talk about politics on twitter um because <laughs> you just end up in in like a, a bun fight there's a um you know like just people going no you're wrong and then other people going, no. just for political fighting and cats from what i can work out yeah <laughs> um katie I, I look i mean this has been an absolute ball um we'll I'm sure we'll do something again. Um, we're coming, oh, we've, we're over time. So sorry to have nicked more of your time. Um, look, it's been really lovely. I'm just gonna uh, tie it up there. Thank you for having me. Pleasure.